Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, Tyler, there are still places in the world where people doubt whether climate change is a reality. And it's funny that uh, those pockets of, uh, I would say, misunderstanding still exist because the rest of the world, and particularly the guests that we have with us today, are well down the line of not only accepting the reality of climate change, but preparing for how we're going to tackle this very difficult problem at a community level. So I'm really excited about the show we're going to do today, Tyler. Well, me too, Peter. And this has been a focus of ours on this show many times as we have been exploring the professional uh, thinker who goes about their work planning for uh, how we as a society are going to actually manage rising seas, actually manage increased floods. And we've got a couple great guests today, Peter, to talk with us about some new techniques. We do indeed. Joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast is Patrick Marchman. He is the interim, one of the interim council members for the Climigration Network and co-chair of the Narrative Building Workgroup, one of five specialty workgroups within the Climigration Network. Uh, he is joined, uh, we are joined today by his colleague, Dr. Hannah Teicher. She is the co-chair with Patrick of the Narrative Building Workgroup. And she is also a researcher in residence for the built environment at the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions. She has earned her PhD from MIT, and I, like to, I do like to include it, in urban and regional planning. Uh, two fantastic guests who are leading the work of the Climate Creation Network on how we might face uh, the conversations about climate migration in the future. Really cool guest, Tyler. Super cool and super important. Uh, the talking it through part might be the most important part, actually. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Peter. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, thank you, Patrick, for joining us on the show. And thank you, Hannah, for also joining us on the American Shoreline podcast to talk about the work that you're doing. No problem. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're really glad to be here. Well, it, it seems so timely and so important. Uh, the more we've read about the Climigration Network, uh, we were very interested in having you on the show to talk about the latest project, the product of your narrative building work group. It is a document titled Lead with Listening, a guidebook for community conversations on climate migration. Um, Hannah, if you would, would you introduce us to uh, yourself and give us a little bit of a background? How did you get involved in in climate work? And uh, tell us a little bit about 
the organization, if you would. Yeah, well, I've been thinking about climate for a long time. I actually started out in architecture before I came to urban planning. And when I started my PhD, I knew that I wanted to work on something to do with sea level rise and adaptation. And it was kind of a long journey to to get to where I am now. I was invited to join the Climigration Network in 2018. And at that point, it was a little bit amorphous and we were all just collaborating online and that was long before covid so it felt especially disconnected at that point there were just a lot of people uh, throwing out ideas about what this network might do and what it could be but i had gotten really interested in the role of narratives and stories in climate in my phd research when i was looking at how the military had shaped this story about climate change as a national security threat. And so that was a story that really took off in the national security space and was influencing a lot of people. And it seemed to me that there was room for other narratives to also take uh, center stage in this debate. And I wanted to be part of shaping those. And so this group seemed like a real opportunity to do that. That's very interesting, Hannah. Would you go into a little bit more depth into this narrative uh the national security narrative that you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Well, there was a really, a really deliberate effort in the early 2000s on the part of some defense professionals and foundations to bring climate change front and center by saying that it was a national security threat. And so then that started to slowly get uptake within the defense establishment. So it was even in documents like the Quadrennial Defense Review, and you started hearing it talked about within the DOD. And so it was a way to kind of get people on board who might not typically think that you know, climate change was an issue, but you know, the military is in a position where they have to be looking forward and assessing threats no matter what they are. And so they've been fairly you know, eyes wide open about climate change. So to me, this seemed like a way to potentially galvanize much broader support for action on both mitigation and adaptation. So reducing emissions and then adapting to the effects of sea level rise. And so I got really interested in how some of these more powerful interests might be leveraged and we might bring really large scale resources and stories to bear on this issue. Fascinating. And Patrick, you're, would you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to the Climigration Network? Sure. Um, so so my background, uh, I, I, I spent a while working on sort of general environmental issues um, with the, the U.S. government, uh, NEPA mostly, and other regulatory laws. I started working for FEMA in 2010 for a bit, and um, I was, uh, as part of, you know, uh, you know, working for FEMA, you're subject to being de deployed to help out people. And so um, I think 2011, I was deployed for the first time to upstate New York after a tropical storm, and I kept hearing people describing things, the same things like they, the, the, the intensity of the rain, something they hadn't seen before. They weren't used to that. And it kind of stuck in my mind a bit. And the next year, of course, I was deployed to Hurricane Sandy. And that left a pretty indelible impression. You know, the the I'll never forget the um, sort of a street in Manhattan Beach, you know, in south, south of Brooklyn with like all everyone's carpets, you know, out on the lawn because, you know, they you don't get, get moldy and you 
really don't forget the smell of that. And, you know, it was just kind of like house after house. And so um, I started, you know, I, I got through a series of coincidences. I got hooked in with um, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. They're the premier sort of um, adaptation focused professional organization uh, here in the U.S. Um, in 2017. And um, around, I think, what was it? 2018 now. So they had a, a process for, um, for suggesting what they called member-led interest groups. And members could just, you know, suggest, you know, a topic they'd want to have a group to, you know, get together and discuss. And so, you know, at that time, there'd been like a bit of a media blitz in terms of, you know, oh, look at these villages in Alaska. Look at what's happening. They might have to move and such. And um, so I suggested climate migration and managed retreat. And I had a few other people collaborate with us. And so we got approved and I ended, ended up, um, you know, kind of running the group for um, for a while. It's actually still going on uh, right now. Um, I've stepped back a little bit, but it was an amazing experience. It kind of took on a life of its own and um, the momentum really just got really, really huge. Lots of people want, you know, involved. Um, and that's sort of how I learned about the Climate Migration Network. And I kind of applied and was like, okay, you know, be a fun thing to do. And um, so I think I came in a little bit after Hannah and it was, you know, as Hannah says, it was a bit, you know, amorphous for a while and they went through a lot of you know kind of structural um you know rethinking and such and um you know uh when they kind of came back with a new executive director and kind of getting a little more formalized and you know um i we kind of connected again and so um so yeah so 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 here i am it's pretty exciting to see how the climate migration network has matured and grown and some of the amazing work that's going on so it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a good place to be well, I got to tell you, it's uh, we had on the podcast Beth Gibbons, the executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals that you mentioned. Uh, tremendous organization out there for coastal professionals of all stripes. And I would encourage people to take a look at the American Society of Adaptation Professionals in addition to the Climigration Network. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about the network itself Um in just looking at the background, formed in 2016, kind of an informal association, it looks like, of professionals interested in climate change and the adaptation to climate change, uh, a group of voluntary professionals who are trying to sort out, it looks like, the institutional frameworks we're going to have to have in place to respond to climate change. Um, Hannah, could you could you talk about what attracted you uh, you to the network and and at this point in its evolution, what this organization is attempting to do? Mm -hmm. Well, it was, I guess what, what attracted me was just that it was a network that was really trying to advance the field in this particular space. I mean, at that time, I think it was really new to have an organization dedicated to climate migration. And it seemed like such an, an urgent, but cutting edge kind of need that nobody has had really paid enough attention to. And pretty early on, then the network identified this big gap between your typical practitioner, so planner, consultant, academic, lawyer working in this space, and then the frontline communities who are really bearing the brunt of climate impacts. So practitioners often will come into conversations or planning processes with a set of assumptions, and those assumptions can be really off-putting to the communities that they're working with. And so that gap was something that we really wanted to work on bridging. And that's what we've really tried to do or start to do with this project. 
You know, uh, before we get too far into this discussion, I think it would be uh, helpful to understand uh, what uh, climigration is. <laughs> and I think also maybe uh, what climate, you know, I, I guess that would be climate migration. But what exactly is that, Hannah? Would you kind of explain for for me <laughs> what that is? Yeah, no problem. I think, you know, it's a little bit of an awkward word and maybe, you know, hopefully we can come up with something better, but it really just means any migration that is at least somewhat impacted by climate change. I mean, migration is driven for a lot of reasons, you know, economic, social, environmental. And so it's hard to isolate climate change and say that people only moved because of that, but it can really play a big role. And so we're looking at migration that is affected by climate change. And of course, that's an issue globally, but so far we've really been focusing on migration within the US. And so that can even be you know, very local migration. You know, A lot of people displaced from Katrina relocated within Louisiana. If you could, um, if you could, Patrick, I think one of the things that surprised me in looking at the website and the development of the project that your team did uh, the work group, uh, the, the, the guidebook, Lead With Listening. Um, I think a lot of our listeners out there uh, are generally aware that some communities are being impacted by rising seas, but have not really seen or are familiar with the kinds of impacts you're talking about, where community relocation is really being seriously considered. Um, or should be seriously considered. Can you gen could you give an overview of of how how real is this phenomenon of climate migration that you guys are 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 uh, focusing on? Well, uh, it, it's it's very real. Um, it's uh, so you know I, I'll I'll preface this by saying you know it, it's it's a worldwide thing in lots of different contexts here in sort of North America. Um, you know it's a uh, I, I think sometimes, you know, um, we, we don't, we, we see things as migration, maybe as something that happens somewhere else. Um, we may have seen like when Hurricane Katrina, for instance, you know, a lot of people, you know, scattered from New Orleans after this. And in some ways that was a, a precursor of some of this. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a lot, uh, there's, you know, Besides sort of the, the the usual suspects, you know, the Alaska villages, maybe some, you know, um, you know the community of Ildejan Charles in Louisiana, places like this, um, there's, there, there, you know, there's a lot of like movement going on. I phrased it when I was forming that member land interest group as sort of the question of where do people go? And so it's not just, you know, the classic migrant issue, but, you know, people who are moving again, as Canna mentioned, for like, you know, second or third order you know, issues that climate change is somewhere in there. But you see this right now in terms of, you know, you're, you're starting to see intimations of this in the Florida Keys and sort of some coastal cities where, you know, maybe full-scale migration is not happening yet, but you're seeing, you know, definite, um, you know, changes in property values depending on proximity to the ocean. You're starting to see, you know, um, I, I can personally attest to um, pro some projects in the past where, you know, um, uh, on some coastal islands, some communities, you're starting to see more like um, sunny day flooding and the puddles that don't go down very fast anymore in front of the CVS, for instance. And, you know, again, people aren't moving away from that yet in general, but, you know, these things are starting to, they're starting to emerge. So it's a very real issue. And it's something that, 
you know, I, I'm convinced. I, I, I bet every, I bet every, um, every dollar in my pocket, in my wallet right now, that this is something that will be um, far more prominent as the years go on. Well, I would, uh, I would join you. I would, I would throw in with you. I wouldn't bet against you, Patrick, because I, I would agree with you that uh, the science is definitive. Um, that we are going to see some major climate changes and that the kind of equilibrium in quotes that we've struck in how we are currently living our lives is just not going to work uh, going out the, the way it's currently done. It's just not going to work going out into the future. Um, but I'm curious, Hannah, um, you know, uh, within the climate gration uh, group, uh, you're you, along with Patrick, are heading up this communications uh, group. Um, can you talk about the importance of community uh, communication and what this particular subcommittee, I guess, uh, is really focused on within the broader context of climate migration? Yeah, I mean, I think that the one of the real keys to it is that communication is not one way. It's really about dialogue. And so one of the things that we're emphasizing here in listening is that you need to really slow down and uh, approach communities and build relationships and build trust and try to really work over the long term instead of assuming that there is some answer. I mean, maps may show you where flooding is likely to happen and where sea level rise is going to happen, but that can be entirely divorced from people's lived experience of a place and what that flooding means to them and their home and having to move. And so you can't just kind of go in with a map and suggest, you know, oh, it's obvious you need to move. And so it's really about this kind of deep two-way communication that we want to foster. And like I said, um, this guidebook is really just a starting point. So it was developed with 40 community co-creators and led by this really diverse um, creative team that worked for us. Um, so we got some really great input. It's a good starting point, but we've got to now pilot it with communities and see how it works if you actually take this on as a process. And we will definitely be making changes as we go. Very interesting. So Patrick is at the moment is the is the narrative building working group and the Climigration Network looking for communities to test out or apply the the new guidebook. Is that are you in the process of trying to recruit communities to uh, to take on this difficult conversation about climate migration? Uh, that's a great question. I'm, I'm not sure recruiting is the right word, but we are definitely looking forward to how to like ro road test this as in, you know, we want this to be a practical thing that, you know, that is relevant to people's, the community's lives. And so we're absolutely, um, you know, having some discussions about this. And um, I don't want to go too deep into some of those, but we're looking at some um, organizations that are doing a lot of work on on the ground, you know, in some of these communities. So the answer is yes, we are we are thinking about our next steps. Hannah, what do you if, if if a community were to come forward and say, you know what, we we are facing some complex issues. I'm up here on the coast of Maine, and I can tell you, just in the few days that I've been here around town, discussion of climate change is a real thing, and uh, I'm not hearing a lot of folks uh, telling me that it's not true. I think they are seeing the evidence clearly in the water, 
in the migration of the organisms along the shoreline here, the water temperature issues. I mean, it's a real thing. But if a if a company were to a, a community were to approach you and say, "Listen, we're interested in a, in in working through the guidebook and having this conversation," what what could you tell us how that process might work, and what what is your hope uh, that that process would produce? Yeah, well, we're really trying to figure that out right now. So not only are we grappling with this leading edge issue, we're also working with this new organizational model. So we've got this network model and we're trying to figure out how to really make it work. I mean, as you mentioned in the introduction, it's all on a volunteer basis, except for the executive director and a little bit of part-time staff support. And so we have to figure out how we can leverage foundation funding, which is something that we're seeking right now, and then use all of our collective expertise and then bring that to bear with a community and get the appropriate capacity in there. And that might include facilitators and might include some other consultants. I think we're not exactly sure how that's going to work, but we would imagine dedicating at least six months to start a series of dialogues with communities. And in this guidebook, we do have a few really concrete activities, which again, are just a starting point, but there's some more creative ways that you can do community engagement. You know, the typical community engagement, you imagine, you know, a whiteboard and somebody's just writing up what everybody thinks. But we're suggesting that in order to really get to the root of some of the issues here that you need to take a more creative approach. And so it can involve things like doing photo essays or getting community members to try to write new newspaper headlines about recent events that they've experienced to really delve into um, the key values in the community, what's important about the community and what might shape some decisions about moving. I think in the really long term, we're looking to shape a whole framework and roadmap for how a community could successfully engage in relocation with all of the kind of supportive services that they would need. So it's not just about finding a new place to live, but having the social support and the employment support and everything that allows people to uproot their lives and potentially move as a community or potentially move as individuals to someplace else. And you know, Patrick mentioned that question of where will people go? That's really essential because really this is not just a coastal issue. You know, this is an issue for everywhere because the people that move from coast are going to be moving inland. So where do they go and what will it be like in those communities when they end up there and how will those communities receive them? Whew. Those are Big, big, big questions. But can I can I ask? And I, I would take this to both of you, but Hannah, since you brought it up, um, well, well, let me let me go first. I'm going to riff a little bit because a few some, a few of the ideas you you mentioned is that you know uh, the climate com- migration is like a human thing. People move; they have been moving forever. That's driven by a plethora of reasons, be it resources, money, better life. Um, but climate can be a contributing factor is what you, you said earlier. And I'm wondering, like, what is what what is your vision for how th- I mean, Peter usually asked the glass half full glass half empty question. But I mean, before we even get there, 
what is your vision for how this might look going into the future? I mean, I realize that there's a whole like community listening process and that this process, but from a process perspective, what is your vision um, for how this might, how, how we might evolve as, as a society in say, I don't know, 25 years, 50 years. Yeah, that, that's a really big question and, and a hard one, but one essential component of this project, if you've taken a look at the guidebook, was design. So, you know, this isn't just about words. And I think design can really help us in envisioning what that future can look like and thinking about physically how our cities and communities might change. I think we're seeing more and more that there's no place that is going to be untouched by climate change, but there are some regions that may end up faring better. And so we need to start looking at how those regions can actually grow their populations. And for some places that can be a real benefit. I mean, we're seeing declining or shrinking cities in the Rust Belt that have been trying to attract immigration. And so this could be a big opportunity but um, you know that's that's going to require some some really big thinking, but but also not a top-down imposition of a vision. You know, it has to be community-led. So it's going to be a really long, involved, iterative process if we want to get to a place that climate migration results in some kind of transformation you know, some kind of societal transformation and not just replicating all the same problems that we have now in a new place. Uh, you know, it's it's an incredibly uh, broad uh, perspective to bring to this issue, Hannah, that you're talking about. Um, you're looking when you, when you look through the materials that you you have uh, uh, put up and I would encourage people online to take a look at the Climate Migration Network's uh, website during this podcast, if you can, it's climmigration.org. Um, but the emphasis on community-led conversations is absolutely central here. Uh, the notion that experts coming into town with maps and data and scientific models to tell a community that it's time to pick up and leave is absolutely rejected throughout the Climate Migration Network's materials. And I, I, Mark, I mean, Patrick, I'm getting the sense that there's a recognition here that in the transformation of, of communities, whether along the coast from flooding, but inland areas because of fire or other natural risks associated with climate. I mean, y'all are talking about trying to take on fundamental equity issues in society. Is that a fair conclusion that you think this process needs to be sensitive to these past injustices in, in our society. Yeah, I think that's a fair conclusion. I think, um, you know, I think one, one, one of the, uh, one of the, the more impressive things about this, I mean, the old things, the present, one of the one of really good things about this is sort of the, the recognition of, you know, um, uh, that, you know, we're not, everyone is not start, starting from sort of a, a level playing field. And I think, you know, again, if you get a little bigger and sort of that conceptual, you know, the world, you know, it's sort of a fundamental you know, underpinning of Western modernity is the idea of like the individual choice and every individual you know, has sort of like their opportunities and you go after it and such like that. And that's that there's a lot of merit to this, but I think, you know, it, it also runs short against, you know, a lot of history and, you know, and other things. And so, 
So yeah, in a lot of ways, we are going to have to because, uh, you know, we don't want to replicate sort of the injustices or even amplify those, you know, if you're looking at sort of a, a transformation, not only sort of on a societal scale, but on an environmental scale to kind of, I mean, let's be honest, you know, we're, we're in a lot of ways, we're sort of on a rocket out of the Holocene, you know, the sort of the geological period that we've been in for the past 14,000 years, you know, and, and nobody can really tell where that's going to end. I mean, quite frankly, every prediction, you know, we seem to be tracking worst case scenarios pretty, um, pretty consistently over the past, past years. So, um, so in that sort of world, you know, a transformation kind of, it really needs to be met with sort of like that similar kind of resolve to adapt societally and, um, you know, be looking out for those, you know, for those sort of things. And also, frankly, you know, some of the, the, um, the communities that have been in the, the disadvantaged portion, you know, frankly, in a future that's, that's different than the one we've all grown up in, um, that sort of more community oriented thing might be a more adaptive you know, way to live than say the individual model that, you know, we've considered sort of the American ideal of success. I have to ask this and, and, and Hannah, because you, of your background and academically and uh, in urban and regional planning from MIT and having studied um, as an architect and practiced as an architect, the notion that, that, planning and community development planning in particular is transformative or should be transformative of society doesn't seem to be entirely new. And I'm wondering if, if in looking at uh, the understanding of community planning and, 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 and now facing climate change and the implications of climate change, is there anything that you can draw historically from similar kinds of issues in how we have looked at planning or social organizations that give you some sense of where we might end up, as Tyler said, over the next 25 to 50 years? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question and another hard one. I think that we can learn a lot from history and it's true that planning has been in envisioning uh, better cities for at least several hundred years and architecture for a few thousand. So there is a lot to draw from and I think it's important to think about the history of these ideas and, and not just imagine that we're doing something entirely new now. Um, I often get pretty frustrated when I think about the fact that we already knew in the 1970s and 80s the kinds of things that we needed to do in order to reduce emissions in cities. And we've seen so little progress. You know, the progress has been really incremental on things like transit-oriented development, you know, using more transit and less cars, using more active transportation. We've, we've seen a little bit of progress, but it's just been very slow. And so I think we have to really ask ourselves if we're pushing these big ideas now and looking decades into the future, how is that going to be different? And so there's been a lot of questioning in planning about so-called big plans and the top-down models. So I think there's certainly a school of thought that that top-down approach just isn't going to work and that maybe the bottom-up and community-led approach has more potential for us now. Um, you know, there have been small examples of that working and I'm trying, I'm not coming up with one right off the top of my head, but um, 
yeah, we need we need to think think carefully about the history and be grounded in that as we move forward. No doubt about it. Uh, definitely an area where it seems that uh, when we're talking, Peter, to the professionals around the American shoreline, that um, increasingly it is clear that we need to acknowledge our history um, as a society and most importantly, the injustices of the past in how we approach the future. And this, as soon as you kind of size that up, you, you almost have to throw away a lot of the old institutional power structures that would guide processes like these, you know, that that's what makes it so challenging from a, you almost have to build a new planning apparatus. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I, I want to. I think that's exactly what it sounds like. These guys are trying to do here is it's it's building a new institutional apparatus that doesn't really exist. And I got to say, Hannah, in in listening to you describe the significance and the centrality of the community based bottom up approach, it makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me, Tyler, of that interview we did. Uh, on the Louisiana coast at the Social Coast Forum. I think there were some folks that were working in and around Isle de Jean Charel, which is one of the Mississippi River Delta communities, uh, an indigenous community, historic indigenous community there, an African-American community uh, that is being relocated. And it struck me, Tyler, if you remember this conversation, um, remember the guy was, they were talking about the relocation of people very close by in a couple of cases within a matter of a few miles, but how significant emotionally this was and how the entire success of the project depended on this community-based person-to-person buy-in. And I think that sounds like uh, what Hannah and, and and Patrick are really working on here. And I think it's a, I think it's the right track. I, I agree too. And the other thing that I'm reminded of Peter are those, um, and I, I don't remember their names, but they were from the Northeast and they were, I want to say the university of New Hampshire, you know, drama department. And they were doing this theatrical community theater type of thing. And, um, Similarly, to, to I mean, what's so interesting uh, about this, and um, I'll kick this to Patrick, but, you know, it's like we, we as, you know, even if you were to take, for example, the bottom-up approach, and just like, I'm just imagining like having some of these conversations with my mother or with my father, it's like there, is, there, there isn't a great deal of uh, practice in having these conversations about the long-term forecast of of your community and it's you know in the case of my family in california the water supply or or, and things like that even though there is of course inherent interest um and one of the things i really appreciated about the lead with listening uh, uh guidebook is that there's a section on kind of the emotional element of the of of climate change um patrick would you talk a little bit about that yeah um yeah i I think it's you know the the emotional part of this is is you know i I think in some ways it's fundamental i mean in my personal view like humans are humans aren't really rational creatures we're creatures of you know emotion that's who we are that's what makes us you know tick and so you can't really be thinking about these things without 
really looking into this. And one of the, again, one of the, one of the really exciting things about this is that we rec that, you know, the, the developers are start recognizing this, um, you know, it, it's a new kind of a, again, it, it's something, you know, I know I've seen, you know, you know, I've seen articles and surveys and such, you know, saying that you know, a lot of people, especially younger people, you know, have like increasing, you know, senses or like existential crises, you know, on, you know, climate and what the world is going to look like. And I think, you know, um, you know, it's a, it's something we need to really kind of discuss. And I think you know, going back to really sort of what we're talking about here, it's, you know, people have emotional attachments to place. I mean, that's a, that's a fundamental, you know, thing that people do and so you know you can't really again you know we, we can't really have experts just swooping in and you know and say okay well you've got to move here you've got to move here kind of like you know sim city or you know one of the civilization games that's not how it works and so um you know to really to really get people you know to i don't know to to really try to make the best of people make give let people make the best of their lives and you know kind of create situations that they they want to be able to live in you have to be able to engage them on that and that level it's respectful and it's you know it's it's probably it's frankly the best way to go about it hannah would you comment on that same thing the necessity of being of in the guidebooks uh focus on on being sensitive to the emotional uh underpinnings of what's being asked of these communities as they attempt to respond to climate change yeah i think it's absolutely essential and you know one thing that we highlight in there is working in a trauma-informed way and i think that might be something that a lot of us can relate to more now having experienced a, a year and a half of covid you know these extreme events end up often really traumatizing communities. And so that's another aspect of this is understanding that human emotional toll when you're talking to people that have been through these really extreme events. And so you can't assume that you can just go in and kind of have a light conversation about it. You need to be aware of all of those impacts ahead of time. And we have a few resources in there about trauma working in a trauma-informed way, but it's something that we definitely need to dive into deeper. And we suggest that it would even be good to have professional help with that part. But even trauma aside, I mean, absolutely all of this, it's very emotional. We're human beings uh, dealing with this major crisis. And so it's not logical. It's not rational. We, we need to deal with the very human element of it. Well, uh, it's in here, here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, we like to, we like to reference uh, some of our, our classic coastal kind of deep seated human, human uh, uh, traits that are just deep in us. And one thing's for certain, Peter, that uh, we are adaptive creatures. And no doubt the first humans that tried to go out on the ocean on a raft probably didn't come back <laughs> or maybe they, a lot of them didn't come back. You know, it, it was, but, but the next generation said, you know what, we're going to try it again. And, and slowly, but surely uh, they evolved and they developed uh, new technologies and new methods. And um, I do, man, I really agree with that. I really agree that there is a, an honesty about the trauma that is necessary uh, particularly in communities that have gone through a climate event, a disaster, a fire, a flood, 
whatever it may be, it's going to make a it's going to create trauma in that community. And that needs to be managed as a part of the man of the planning process and not kind of a separate piece. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important work that's going on. Uh, I wanted to, you know, at this point, it seems like we're just at the beginning in 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 this decade and in in the foreseeable decades here, trying to figure out what we're going to do about these increasingly profound risks that are uh, coming in relation to climate change, the, the fires in the in the American West right now, the se- series of major storms and the impacts on coastal communities over the last decade, there's a pretty big list here that's developing just in North America, but it's happening around the world. Um, I've been reading with great interest, and I wanted to ask Hannah if you if if if, if perhaps there's an update available. But I've been reading with great interest about Indonesia's plans to relocate the city of Jakarta which is a city of more than 10 million people uh, that is in the process of being planned in a new location. Um, Hannah, can you, if you're aware, and I'm not sure if you've studied this at all, but are you seeing around the world an increasing focus on the willingness to consider these drastic solutions of migration? Yeah, I think there's starting to be, and I wish that I was more up to date on what's happening in Jakarta, but I'm not. but um, you know, I know the one influence in, in Jakarta has been the Dutch over many centuries now, and the, the Dutch have been dealing with sea level rise for, you know, for millennia, really. And so they've been ahead of the game in terms of thinking about how you make cities and buildings that float, and they've been exporting some of those ideas around the world. And so I know that there is definitely work on that, but I think for the most part, it's still on a pretty small scale. Well, there's no doubt that I think uh, this conversation is the beginning of many to come. Uh, I think you guys are the pioneers in climate migration thinking. Um, It's brand new. Um, It's a new professional discipline. I don't think we're institutionally quite uh, fully equipped to understand how to approach these complex issues, but it's really exciting to to learn that there are professionals out there organized, funded, at least uh, a decent to begin with, and and trying to develop new strategies for climate adaptation. That seems pretty damn important. Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the things is that, you know, emissions are going to be pretty hard to control at this point. You know, we're working on it and maybe we'll get there. But adaptation is something that is still, we, we can have much more of an impact. And so we should try to do that. Thank you. Uh, final words, Patrick. Um, you know, I, I, I'll you know just to kind of echo what what Hannah said. And the one one thing I also want to say is um, one of the things that that's really important to think about. And I think you know we're having conversations within climate migration and elsewhere, and we're really starting this is looking at sort of the financial aspects of it. You know, the the, the modern world has sort of a, this invisible superstructure of of money, almost like sort of in the scene in the matrix, you sort of see the code behind everything. And so, um, you know, when you're looking at finance, you're looking at insurance, you're looking at real estate, these things are going to have a real material effect in terms of any questions about where people are going to go. Because then the question almost gets modified to what are they going to actually do? So, you know, again, we're starting, we're really early in some of the conversations. You know, I'm starting to get, dive into this a little bit more personally. It's, it's early days, but, um, you know, it's good to know, again, we're, uh, 
we're thinking about it because this is going to affect everything. And it's um, it's incredibly uh, important. It's also incredibly professionally and intellectually exciting. So it's uh, nice to be in a, this sort of field. Nice to be working with Hannah and looking forward to more. That's great. Ladies and gentlemen, Patrick Marchman, who's an interim council member with the Climigration Network. He's co-chair of the Narrative Building Work Group, along with Dr. Hannah Tesher, who's also the co-chair of that group. And the product that has come out, and I encourage everyone to take a look at it, it's at, it's at uh, Climate Climigration Network on, on the internet, Lead With Listening, a guidebook for community conversations on climate migration. Really important work, as I say, I think we're talking to the pioneers and we'll be following this work along on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Really appreciate, Patrick, you taking the time. And Hannah, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with our audience today on the American Shoreline Podcast. No problem. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks so much. Together,